0: Welcome to the Review Be Name podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. Tonight on the show, we're going to do our standard pop culture news roundup. We're going to talk about the Newsroom Season 2 premiere. And we're going to talk about Guillermo del Toro's new film, Pacific Rim. So stick with us throughout the hour. I think we got a good show for you. With me on the podcast tonight, we have Rachel.
1: Hi, guys.
0: And Chris. Yow. So, um... After some brief technical difficulties in a now aborted podcast, it sounds like I have both of you here, which is nice. Uh, Rachel, Chris and I, or Chris, Rachel and I were discussing the fact that we think we have a Ruby named Burglar who was following uh, contributors around, breaking into their houses and interrupting their podcasts, and that's what's been causing our problems. Um, so that was a theory that we developed that listeners never had to hear, but I've now brought up for all of our listeners who are wondering about behind-the-scenes drama here at the Ruby Named Podcast. For now, though, I'm going to kick things over to you, Rachel, and we'll start our news roundup.
1: Well, in addition to me officially adding "burgle" to uh, my top ten favorite words list, um, the big news tonight, I think, is that Donald Glover is only going to be appearing on five episodes of the new episode of the new season of Community. And I know that everybody here was super excited to have Dan Harmon back and have Community move hopefully towards the better version than it was earlier on in the series. Um, But this, I think, kind of throws that all in the air. Um, And I'd love to hear what you guys have to think. Jordan, you want to kick us off?
0: Sure. Um, Honestly, I'm starting to get the feeling that Community is cursed. We had had, uh, season three end and everyone thought, okay, this is probably the end. It got miraculously renewed. We were all excited. Dan Harmon was fired. Uh, Okay, season four, we're going to try it out. Season four, uh, Chevy Ch- we hear Chevy Chase is leaving, which is, I think, a mixed blessing, but had its negatives. Um, okay, it's okay. We still got the show. The show's not very good in season four. That's okay. We still got a really strong cast, especially Donald Glover, who was just killing it even when the writing was not up to par. Uh, season four ends. Well, it's probably canceled now, and maybe I'm not as sad about it. Oh, wait, Dan Harmon is going to be back for a season five. No way, except now Donald Glover is only going to be in five of the 13 episodes, which my math skills tell me is less than half. I think he's one of the strongest comedic actors on the show. He is one of the best parts of the season four uh, where the writing wasn't as up to par. I am deeply depressed that we will not have him. Uh, Chris? What an
2: emotional roller coaster you just sent us on, Jordan. Yeah. Like that was a whirlwind of my past summer. Well, year, actually. <laughs> um, I Chris feel has the... really long summers. G- yeah. July to
0: July is the Chris summer.
2: I pretty much live in the A Song of Ice and Fire kind of world. Winter hasn't come yet, but dear God, it's going to be awful. <laughs> Um oh man. Yeah, so what a I I agree with you hands down. Donald Glover for me was always the breakout uh star of community because I, I always remember Donald Glover as the guy from the uh hilarious but uh you know, made for YouTube web shorts uh Derek comedy. So when he was in a sitcom holding his own against Joel McHale and Chevy Chase, I really stood up and took notice of this guy and the idea of community without him especially when community in season 3 was really the story of sort of uh him coming into adulthood and him like becoming the true leader of the group it's just really disappointing i mean uh, he he was definitely one of those characters that really carried the baton of a central character even though it was a very much an ensemble show like there were at times where he sort of felt kind of like a very very central to the core direction of these stories And I just, I could see the ensemble surviving without Chevy. I don't know how that dynamic's going to work without Donald. I just don't see it being even remotely the same kind of show as it was. But it makes me very interested for Community Season 5, because Community Season 5 has to be something completely different. Harmon almost has to reinvent the wheel this time around, and there's a slight part of me that has hope that maybe he's up for this challenge that maybe this is just the next level of the show that he was constantly reinventing during his time on. And now he's just been thrown this huge challenge and maybe he's going to just knock it out of the park.
0: That'd be great. Um, I think you're dead on when you say, uh, Glover sort of became the thematic center of the show, especially, I mean, I think season two and three, uh, of the show, you really saw Troy become the heart of the group and, and it's de facto leader, it's moral center. Um, and I think you're going to miss that. Obviously, uh, I think more apparently to fans of the, the show's comedy stylings, you're going to miss Troy and Abed pairings, which is central to a lot of the show's B and C stories and just great moments in any given episode. Um, no more what, Troy
1: and Abed in the morning.
0: Or at least a lot less Troy and Abed in the morning. Troy and Abed on occasional mornings.
2: <laughs> oh, that just sounds awful.
0: Makes me sad. Yeah. Um, What I just don't understand is... Dolan Glover is apparently reducing his role in the show to give more time over to his uh, hip-hop career as Childish Gambino, which is fine, but this is a 13-episode order for Season 5. I feel like that gives him 39 weeks of the year to be Childish Gambino. I just don't see why, uh, why he had to reduce the role, especially when, as I said, it's always assumed this will be the last season. It might not be, but for the moment, he's only got 13 more weeks had he signed on for the full season. doing this so i was deeply confused by that i'm i'm willing to
2: guess that he was maybe on his way out before the news about Harmon return came around i'm thinking i i think like the comments he was making during that fourth season definitely seemed like he was already planning his exit strategy
0: you think so yeah i i I think that's probably right but i expected that maybe Harmon returning would change that
2: maybe he was just locked into something i don't know uh
0: Rach, you were going to say something a second ago. I was going
1: to say it, 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 because I'm an eternal pessimist. Um, it makes me a little nervous to think that he's leaving, um, mostly because in terms of the Dan Harmon return, you had a cast that was very vocal about wanting Harmon to return, and I guess it's it's there's a much more positive spin if you think about it as he was going to leave beforehand anyway. Um, but my ultimate fear would be that he's stepping aside because he's not really a fan of where the show was going.
0: Well, I think that's misplaced since the show hasn't, like, the writers haven't reconvened yet. Um, so if he was worried about where the show was going, you would think he would wait until Harmon was back in the saddle and actually writing things. Um, however, there's always a, ch- a possibility that he hated season four so much he just didn't think season five could be saved. I mean that doesn't that wouldn't surprise me at all simply because i don't think season five could be saved without dan Harmon. you know i was not planning i was probably gonna watch the show but i had vowed to not write about it anymore and to not care about community nearly as much uh going into season five if it existed until dan Harmon was announced to return so i can see having had to actually be on the show and have your name plastered on it for the last 13 episodes that were not very good i could see wanting to distance yourself Um, do we okay. have any last thoughts on Donald Glover before we zip right along here?
2: Do you think I, that... I, I, I can't help but thinking like we're on the road to seeing sort of a Scrubs MD type scenario from... <laughs> no, Scrubs uh, medical school type scenario right. from I, I knew Season what you meant, 5. Yeah. Yeah. Is anybody else getting that vibe?
0: I mean... The thing is, we know that Jeff is graduating. Yeah. There's no uh, Pierce, and there's going to be a lot less Troy. So I think at this point, Harvin has to figure out a way to twist things.
2: I think, I, I think they might actually go Scrubs Medical School with it and just time jump it, and now they're all just teachers at Greendale. <laughs> <laughs> that would work um, if you think about it.
0: Yeah, honestly, I would watch... Frankly, I'm excited for the show, no matter what, now that Dan Harmon is back, because I have a lot of faith in him, too. Even when I wasn't a huge fan of the back half of Season 3, as I think is well documented on the website uh, and in our podcasts, I still loved the show, uh, but I wasn't as big a fan of what it did in the back half of Harmon's last season. But it was always interesting, even when it was failing. So I imagine having Harmon back, whatever he chooses to do with it, it will be interesting and it will be worth watching, even if it is not as good as it was. Back when we had the core cast and Harmon was really cooking, um, but yeah, I, I think a drastic premise change is unlikely, but definitely not out of the question. You never know what Dan Harmon's going to come up with, and he's going to have to come up with a way to be creative at this point because the show has changed, and he was not—he didn't preside over a lot of that change, and a lot of it's been out of his control. So I think that's definitely true. Rach, any last thoughts?
1: I'm nervous but i'm always nervous
0: <laughs> yeah i i'll all agree with you on that but at this point i can go ahead and guess that i will probably be covering season five of community because dan harman's back and i'm going to be interested in writing about it uh i can almost guarantee that we will talk about it early on in season five because we all watch the show and we all either like it or like to talk about what we don't like about it as it was in season four um so expect to hear more from us on that soon for now we're going to move on and talk about uh A little preview of a director we're going to be talking about later, a new news story involving Guillermo del Toro, who, if you pay attention to uh, Hollywood rumors, is attached to literally every project going on in Hollywood at some point or another. Uh, The guy usually has 15, 20 things that are quote-unquote in development, most of which will never happen. But he has announced uh, and started to poke around a very, very intriguing project that is basically like many of my favorite things wrapped in one. He has announced he wants to direct an adaptation of Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, and he would like Charlie Kaufman to write the screenplay for it. To reiterate, Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, one of my favorite books, written by Charlie Kaufman, one of my favorite screenwriters writing today, directed by Guillermo del Toro. Chances of this happening, who the hell knows? But del Toro has announced it, he said he's trying to work out a deal, he's trying to work it out in his production schedule, he's trying to get Charlie Kaufman hired... He and Kaufman have talked about it. They both seem to be on board, so I'm gonna say I will be very surprised if this actually happens because it sounds too good to be true. But I'm really, really excited about the possibility. Rachel,
1: um, I think it's gonna be pretty cool if it happens. Um, I think it's. I would be worried if it were in hands other than Guillermo del Toro's. I would. I would be a little nervous. Again, as I am always nervous, but I think that (laughs) if there's a director working today who could really pull it off, I think it's him. So it'll be interesting to kind of watch and see if it manages to come to fruition um, and, and how and how he how he kind of plays it.
0: Definitely.
2: Chris? Uh, I don't think that I could possibly be less, ex- more excited about this. I, it's <laughs> awesome. I am, I, I would love this to happen. <laughs> like, please let For a second happen. there, I was like,
0: Le- couldn't be less excited? What? what? <laughs> like, Chris, these are things you like. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is the sort of thing, like I say, Guillermo Torres is attached to so much. It's almost not even worth reporting when he says he's attached right. to something. But this is just too good to not talk about.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the prospect of this is, how, as a studio, how could you say no to that? I mean, okay, maybe, yeah, I could see them saying no to that, actually. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean, how could you say no to that? It's a,
0: it's a willfully non-commercial screenwriter, yeah. a very difficult book to adapt, and Guillermo del Toro says he's going to make everything and never gets around to most of it.
2: Shut up, Jordan. I
0: definitely see as a studio executive going, yeah, I don't think we're going to make this movie.
2: But um, I wish they would. All right, I want this. That's my comment on that one. Fuck <laughs> you
0: what fair enough um i don't want to spend too much time on this because we got a lot to cover and because like i said it's basically jordan writing fan fiction that someone else happened to report at this point so um if this comes to fruition if it sounds like this is actually going to happen you will hear about it again because i am very very excited and i think i'm not alone here from what i've been hearing um, with that, Chris, I want to kick it over to you for your story for the week.
2: Okay, my story for the week involves something that we've been covering us uh, for quite a while, despite Jordan's attempts to keep us from covering it whenever he can. So keep we snuck one through, guys. It's a win it. for America. Uh, <laughs> Netflix is considering, uh, is in talks right now for the fifth season of Arrested Development. Um, I think personally that this is very exciting news. I know whenever the fourth season of Arrested Development is talked about. Inevitably, the conversation always shifts to the movie. When's the Arrested Development movie happening? When are we going to see this Arrested Development movie? I'm going to say something controversial right here. I don't give a shit about the Arrested Development movie, and not if I can have more seasons. Arrested Development is a show that works so much better in the serialized format that I can't even begin to imagine how a hypothetical Arrested Development movie would work. Uh, If... The model going forward is more seasons produced by Netflix. I, I think I'm a huge fan of season four. I think most of us on the podcast were huge fans of season four. So I know this is just preliminary talks right now, but to me, this is great news. This is exactly what I want to hear as a Arrested Development fan, more Arrested Development in the format that I love, which is serialized television. What do you guys, what do you guys think about this?
1: Well, I just don't see how they'd be able to jump to a movie rather than another series, considering how fucking hard it was for them to get the entire cast together for season four. Um, and that's like something that you can't really fake in a movie, or at least it's much more difficult to fake in a movie.:
0: uh, Well, I think the idea is it would be easier to get the entire cast together for the shorter shooting schedule of a movie.
1: Yeah I guess hypothetically. Um, also, but no, they would probably I definitely make more
0: money on a movie than they would on the TV show. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but I definitely agree with with Chris. I think that the show is able to do a lot of stuff that a movie would not be able to do. Um, and a season means I get to spend longer with them, or at least it feels like longer. So that's what I want.
0: Yeah, I, I have to agree. I think Arrested Development is best at long-form storytelling and it gives it the, t- the chance to develop new running gags, to call back old ones, to bring in new characters and plot complications and to bounce them off each other for a while. I think this is this is a long-form type of storytelling. and I think especially uh, one of the strengths of Season 4, we talked about it on the podcast a while ago, I think, was the way that it really delved into the narrative and it really delved into what these characters looked like when they fell apart. And... It set up at the end of season four, I think it put everybody in a very interesting place and it set up, I think, a very interesting narrative about how this family might come back together. Hurwitz has already announced, uh, even with the discussion of talks, that a fifth season would do much better at having the entire cast actually together as they were in the original show, Be it, whether it be a longer shooting schedule to accommodate people or uh, just figuring it out and shooting it only when everyone was going to be available. He said... It's one of his priorities to make sure that everyone or at least a lot more of the cast members are able to interact in the next season and I think it's necessary for the narrative that he's telling that now we've seen the family fall apart they'll get back together. Um, as I think we talked about when we talked about season four, Chris, like you said, I just don't think a movie is the way to end the story. After Arrested Development was cancelled, I thought it was the only chance. You know, yeah. In 2006, that was all we had going for us and that was where our hopes were. Now that Netflix is viable, now that it's had a successful fourth season and they're in talks for a fifth, I would much rather see a fifth season uh, be it the last of the show, be it the second to last, you know, yeah. whatever it is, I would much rather see this continue on Netflix. I think I think it's found a great home there. I think Netflix has been supportive of it. I think that's the way to go.
2: Absolutely. Hands down, I think that if that, going forward, that's my first choice for how I would like to see rest of development continued.
0: Excellent. Um, so... Yeah, as Chris said, I keep the... I try to keep Arrested Development to a minimum on this podcast because if I didn't do that, every week someone would be like, there was a rumor that someone said something about Arrested Development in Hollywood. Uh, so, Fascist. keep in mind, listeners, if anything ever happens on Arrested Development, it's almost certain that someone will convince me we need to talk about it on the podcast. Um, if this becomes at all more official, we will cover it. And obviously, should a fifth season happen, we'll be talking about it quite a lot. Um, for now... Let's just put us all in the pro season five of Arrested Development column uh, and move on. Why don't we... Um, Rich, I'm going to kick it to you to start our conversation of season two of The Newsroom because I know you have, I'm sure, a lot of thoughts on this.
1: Yeah. Well, um, apparently I am one of the few people on the planet who continues to watch Newsroom out of something more than just hate watching. Um, I actually really enjoy the show. And yes, it's probably because... I um, finally took Jordan's advice and stopped rewatching The West Wing. So, really, just needed a little bit of circuit in my life. But um, I thought that the season two opener, while somewhat lazy for relying on flashbacks, and I don't think that's a spoiler, and I think that, you know, Jordan will give his whole spiel about spoilers and how we won't start with them right now. Um, (laughs) But I think that otherwise, the. Season opener for season two was pretty good. Um, I enjoy seeing Reese Lansing get just shot down whenever possible, so that's a big up. Um, And overall, I was pretty happy with it. Mind you, I've only watched it once, and it was pretty early in the morning, so it was pre-coffee, so really my judgment can't be trusted. But I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say, because I believe that you walked away from season one with very different feelings than what I had.
0: Before we go to Chris, and we'll get to you in a second, Chris, I have to say I'm interested to hear why you would ever watch an episode of this show more than once. That sounds that sounds shocking to me that you would revisit the newsroom.
2: I I actually I actually have some comments on that.
1: I usually watch a lot of things more than once, actually.
0: Chris, what are your what are your comments on revisiting the newsroom?
2: Um, I either I I thought I, okay, I don't remember season one at all. <laughs> um the the character's name is um reese lansing right he's yes. he's the guy from Christmas the uh, the Mindy project yes, yes okay, okay. What, it, wasn't he going to jail at the end of the last season
0: um no that was i as i recall and I, I chris i think you and i were talking about this last week i was actually speaking about the newsroom to someone who just caught up on season one yeah was actually a, a fairly big fan of the show, and I was trying... He kept asking me, why don't you like it? What is... You're alleging that-, that it's sexist a lot of the time. Tell tell me about this. And I was trying to come up with examples, realizing I remember almost nothing about season one, because I- by the time it reached the halfway point of that season, I think I was sort of absentmindedly hate-watching and just getting irritated at it every week. Um, yeah. But as I recall, and Rachel, you apparently watch things more than once, uh, even the newsroom, so you may refer- uh, correct me if I'm wrong. As I recall... If they had revealed the scandal, he would have gone to prison, but they used it instead as leverage to get uh the network off Will's back. Yes.
1: That okay. is at least what I recall. Yeah. So wait, let me let me explain why I tend to rewatch almost everything, including the newsroom. Please I do. I usually well, first of all, it just helps me process better. I like to kind of have it and then like be able to experience it one time and then be able to really like think about it. Um because I know most of the time that I'm going to have to defend it to you losers. Um, but then there's also the practical fact that like I usually watch before and then we'll watch again with my roommate. Um, Oh yeah, I know. It's so great. Uh, shut up Jordan. Um, so yeah, there's that, but I actually resisted the urge to rewatch all of newsroom season one before season two started. Um, Mostly because I just had other things to watch. I was considering doing it this weekend, but then I picked up the good wife, which is a whole other conversation.
0: Yeah, uh, it is. And we will talk <laughs> about the good wife at some point, I'm sure, now that someone other than me on the podcast watches it.
1: It's really good. I like it. Um But I So yeah, so that's my that's my tendency for rewatching. If only because I I feel very strongly that if you're going to criticize something, you have to be really well versed in it. Um I think that's fair. So even when it comes to like things like hate watching, like I watch just so much shit that you would consider hate watch. Um,
0: yeah, but you don't. You have you have a much wider spectrum of guilty pleasure than I think I allow myself.
1: <laughs> that's true. But um, I, I do. Someone call it
0: you being more open minded than me, but <laughs> we can talk about that in another podcast.
1: <laughs> that's not something I've ever been accused of before. Um,
0: yeah, and you probably won't again. So enjoy it.
1: Never again. Never again. No, and also I think that part of it might part of why I enjoy the newsroom more than most people would probably be because I do work in media. Um
0: You are an anchor on CNN, right?
1: I am an anchor man on CNN, yes. Um I am the
0: system from within.
1: <laughs> I am Ron Burgundy. Um But no. So it's it's fun considering my job uh which is a political consultant for uh Progressive issue-based campaigns. For those of you who don't know,
0: um, I think you plug <laughs> your career on this podcast more than any of the rest of us. Perhaps because you have a career more than any of the it's rest of us. Are you trying true, yeah. to
2: open up like a boutique shop or something? Are you no in a shopping room oh, for clients? I, uh...
0: Maybe maybe this podcast <laughs> is not the best place. <laughs> actually, the only <laughs> listeners we have uh, are political media people. So. Yeah,
1: I don't know if anybody on this podcast could really afford me. Um, we are the
0: exclusive entertainment and pop culture podcast for the political elite oh, no so but president obama i'm glad you're listening thanks
2: for listening mr romney
1: <laughs> getting back to the point uh,
2: <laughs> never
1: a lot of the stories the way that sorkin writes them um and i know that a lot of people hate that he doesn't just make up news events i love that he does real news events because like nine times out of ten he does the news the way that i wish it would be written um but it isn't. So there is some kind of like sick escapist pleasure in how Will McAvoy covers a lot of things, not all. And I think that we see that in this season premiere. Um, but in how he covers most of his things, there, there are things that I wish that's how they would actually be covered. Those were words almost strung together that was properly. That was
0: almost a cogent point. <laughs> um, before I kick to Chris, I just want to say, as I have to, Rachel, because you said I was going to give the spiel, I'll now give the spiel. We are going to get into spoilers in a minute. For the moment, we're going to stay spoiler-free, and I will warn you before we spoil anything that happened in the episode. So if you haven't watched it yet, go ahead and keep listening. I'll let you know when to skip ahead. Chris, go ahead and tell us your thoughts on the episode.
2: Um, okay. I, I'm going to reiterate the fact that I remember l- much less than I thought uh, of season one. Uh, because watching season two premiere for me almost seemed like what I remember of season one started being around the midpoint, this being like a divergent timeline from what the last memory I have of that show, because it seemed like there were certain things that I don't know, directly contradicted things I remember, but it, it doesn't matter because obviously my memory is shoddy of the first season and that is weird. It was just a very weird watching experience, which is what I'm trying to say. Um, that being said, uh... I actually liked this uh episode more than I liked other episodes uh from season one um I think that i i i think i i didn't don't think they solved any of the problems really I really think that all the same problems I have with season one are still there in Almost exacerbated in some cases. Like I think that like that joke account that you and I love so much, Jordan the uh, the, yeah, the Twitter, Twitter account, account at HBO I think they made room, a joke about neil getting really involved in Occupy Wall Street. Um, and now he is getting really involved in Occupy Wall Street. Like I uh, I don't know that they've ever made a joke about Maggie doing a stupid weird haircut, but it
0: they might as well have, yeah. and she did. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like that. That okay. So that, that I'm glad you brought that up because that for me was like the moment of like I, I start watching because like whenever whenever it's just Jeff Bridges, I, I, you know, Jeff Daniels, this show is it, it works for me to an extent. I of the entire cast, Jeff Daniels is the only one who I think gets the Sorkin rhythm, who can deliver the lines, who can make the lines land. So when it starts out with just him talking with the lawyer and back and forth, I, I start watching. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is this is better than I remember. And then you have that scene where she walks in, the lawyer who's, like, dealing with, I'm assuming, like, a incredibly high-profile case spends the next five minutes talking about her hair. Like, for me, that is all the problems of this show in a nutshell. Um, I think that's right. (laughs) uh, But a a couple—I did like a couple things from this episode, and I think primarily among them, I liked— um the interplay between will and maggie a little bit better this time around not in every scene i didn't like it in the bar that was just back to their normal bullshit that i can't stand Uh, will and mckenzie oh yeah will and mckenzie god i can't remember anyone's names (laughs) it's okay i i enjoyed this
0: immensely (laughs) yeah
2: so will and mckenzie's uh interplay i liked a little bit more this season i liked the scene where they were in the control room and everything was going wrong and um you actually got to see Mackenzie be competent for a change, which is something refreshing. Yeah, thank God. Refreshing. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, for me, it was just a reminder of a lot of the reasons why I dislike this show. And I, it's definitely a guilty pleasure watch for me because I don't think I can stop watching it. I don't even know if I can call it a guilty pleasure because it doesn't give me much pleasure to watch it. But I will probably still watch it and feel very guilty about doing so.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll jump in now. There's, there I think... The way you just said it summarized a lot of my feelings. There's like a... It's not joy, but there's a sick, like, something that I get out of watching the show, um, even as it continues to disappoint me. And I'll say, right off the bat, I think the season two premiere is one of, if not, like, the best episode the show's done yet. Um, I think it was a, a pretty solid hour for the show. Yeah, by, by that their standards, being said, I thought
2: this was one of their stronger outings. Yeah,
0: I agree. That being said, as as I think you already said, Chris... It has pretty much all the weaknesses the show had last year. Um, It seems like Sorkin has tried a little bit to to clean up here and there. It seems like he's trying to make everyone less smug, which is one of the big problems I had last year. Um, And he's showing they're capable of screwing up. Seems like that's going to be a big arc this season, in fact. That's good. They toned down the uh, theme song, so it's less, we are the greatest newscast ever. We are literally Edward R. Murrow. um, And more like, we're a newscast! Yay! Uh, Which is nice. I felt like everyone seemed a little bit more settled in their performances than they had last year, especially in the early going of season one. It was pretty rough with the Sorkin dialogue. And while I still agree with you, Chris, that Daniels is the one who masters it, uh, and the rest of them were a little bit hit and miss, yeah. uh, I think Sam Waterston has gotten much better at it and is actually pretty solid now. Um, but I think everyone's gotten a little bit better at it. Um, so I'll say that. I'll say uh, my favorite character from last season was Olivia Munn's Sloan Sabbath. She is still my favorite character after tonight's episode, even though they gave her some pretty dumb things to do throughout the hour. Um, I think she is another one who kind of she gets the patter, she gets the banter, and even when Sorkin gives her something dumb and sexist to do, which happens deeply, shockingly a lot on this show, like yeah,
2: it's
0: pretty much like, the biggest, most troubling thing about the show to me is how often Sorkin is throwing the women on the show horribly sexist material and he he throws some at olivia munn tonight uh or in last night's episode rather i don't know why i said tonight it's not even the night it aired um he throws he throws some at her there's some for mckinsey there's some for really every woman on the show uh in this episode but i think she's the one that manages to pull it off with the most aplomb Um, i I think that
2: i think the difference there is that she can really land those comedic beats whereas the other two i don't really think can sell it into a comedic moment as well as she can I think that's exactly right. I think... I always say, uh, when Sorkin dealt with
0: charges of sexism in his previous shows, I would always say, uh, the thing about his characters is they're all really, really, really good at their jobs and really, really terrible in their personal life. And that's uniformly the case across the board. In the newsroom, that has been less the case in that we've seen the men be competent a lot more than we've seen the women be competent. And we've seen the women be a mess in their personal lives a lot more than we've seen the men be a mess in their personal lives. So it's just been a, a skewed balance. And I think... Salone Sabbath is the character that most hits the balance we're used to seeing from the show, which is like, she is really, really good at her job, and a little bit of a mess in her personal life in ways that are funny and endearing, and don't undermine her capabilities. Um, I I don't know that I loved the show's structure. I feel like it's a vintage Sorkin structure for the episode, uh, in that we start with something that's happened, we flashback to what's building up to it. Sorkin does this sort of thing all the time. It's a little old hat for him, though sorkin cribbing from sorkin is nothing new um that being said i think it for the most part worked and i think some good things came out of it um i'm sure we'll get more in depth but i want to stop blathering on and get back to you guys for the moment
2: i i'll agree with you about the uh effectiveness of the flash forward in that um it finally kind of gave the show a sense of stakes that i thought it's been missing for for a while like even tonight the I mean, Je- I-, I don't think anyone will disagree when I say that Jeff Daniels is the strongest performance on the show, but I, I have a really hard time so when his arc kind of just comes down to, like, like the scene... I-, I thought the scene where Mackenzie um, calls him at night, where he's kind of in the hammock just like he can't sleep, it was a really well-performed scene. There- I really liked the dialogue between them in that scene. Um, and Van Morrison was playing, which is always yeah, nice. But and when- he
1: was smoking marijuana.
2: But when, you, when it comes down to it, <laughs> he's really sad because he's not as popular as he was. And that was the stakes at that moment. And Jeff Danes was selling the hell out of it. But, like, at the same time, it's like, after a little while, I kind of have to ask myself, do I really care? And I'm not sure that do. Right, I like, we're
0: supposed to root for him to be the better man. Yeah. And we do, but then the show also reminds us, like, his greatest tragedy is he lost a lot of his audience in that way. Um, well, maybe not as great as tragedy, but one of that them. That's
1: unfair. This you have to remember. Like this is his career. Like this is his job. This is his life. Has been being a journalist, and you know they spend a lot of time talking about his issues where he needs strangers to love him, right? But they do. I think that that's something that you're. It's not necessarily fair to completely downplay and belittle as just like, oh, well, that's BS. He's just sad that people aren't watching his show. Because at the end of the day, like, it is his livelihood. It is the livelihood of many, many people around him. Um, So that is a pressure that I think he should be feeling, both in terms of being a professional and knowing the weight that is on his shoulders to carry the show, but also as a news anchor who, I mean – Really, there's a certain kind of limelight that comes with being a news commentator that is very kind of Hollywood movie star esque. Just you know, in DC or New York, I guess. Um, I did love that moment when uh, they're in the the planning meeting and she and, and Mac makes that comment about New York, about DC, where it's like, well, nobody cares about DC because that's really true um, in terms of news production. Um, <laughs> but I don't think I don't. I mean, I don't think it's fair to to kind of dismiss Will's concerns like oh he's just sad that people don't like him I think there's Uh, definitely more to play there Um, yeah Mac is a mess but like who isn't a mess I mean I have bigger problems with Maggie and I'm wondering when you guys are talking about Sloan and how Olivia Munn is able to kind of pull off a lot of the sexist material in a way that is better than any of the other characters yeah, That
0: minimizes it. let's make it clear i don't think she makes it work because i don't think it works yeah. but i think she makes it work better
1: i actually and this might be controversial because I, I think that this is what you guys are specifically referring to without saying it but i actually really enjoyed the interaction between sloan and charlie um
0: here why don't we um why don't i say i will backtrack and say you're right about will i think i think i was a little cavalier there and he does have more going on and why don't we, we can move into more spoilery territory and talk about that interaction and some other things. So if you've not seen the episode yet, skip, uh, we're not going to be on this more than maybe five more minutes. So skip about five minutes ahead and we'll talk about Pacific Rim. Otherwise, stick with us. Rachel, go ahead and talk about that.
1: Yeah. So there's an interaction with Sloan and Charlie. Um, I just love everything, everything Charlie. I think he's fantastic and I kind of want to be him in like 30 to 40 years. I love that he's always drunk and, um still manages to come into the office. I guess that's my biggest professional aspiration. Yeah,
0: that's the dream, <laughs> like, to be both drunk and in the office. Uh, you can't do like, your job hungover.
2: Find a new job.
0: Exactly. That's um, what I always say. That's not what I always say.
2: Well, and I love like
0: the
1: comment that he makes about like them being on the Romney bus. Like They're in Nashua. Like They're drunk in the morning, too. That was fantastic. Um, but I really liked that back and forth. Mostly because I trust... And this might actually be a lot of character that is imbued in the actor and not the character as written on the page. Um, But I trust that his comments aren't malicious. Um, And at the end of the day, I feel like he has everybody's back so he can snark at them. And yeah, it's it's the things he says are sexist. But I think that... It's also the kind of situation where um, that character wouldn't be pushing that kind of, those kinds of comments to, to another person, another character who he knew couldn't handle it. Like, he would never have that conversation with Maggie. But, see, that's, but
2: he that's have, not it the scene. I,
0: well, here, before we get into uh, whatever scene is yeah. driving you crazy, Chris, I have to say a few things. First of all, the idea, like, can handle it and that, that she should have to handle it is kind of bothersome and brings me to the other thing I wanted to point out, which is the same friend I was talking about who likes the show a lot more than me, uh, and I have had conversations in the past, and especially after the newsroom, well I have gone back to the West Wing and other Sorkin products, there's this, I feel like Aaron Sorkin has this idea of, like, 1950s-style gender roles, where it's like, it's not really sexist per se, it's just like, oh, women, ha, 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 and, like, they're strong women, they can handle it, it's cool if we're a little, like, sexist toward them, and I mean, you saw the same thing with the president and Alice and Janney, uh, CJ on the West Wing, and Leo and CJ on the West Wing. Uh, it's just something Sorkin kind of plays around with. And like, I guess on the West Wing, it always felt benign to me because that show was not as overtly sexist as this one often is. But it sticks out a lot more to me on a show like this, where the first scene we see of Sloane is not Sloane being competent. We get to see that in the episode. We do. But the first scene we see is Sloane taking shit from Charlie basically for being a woman. Um, and she gives it back to him, and I liked that interplay between them, but it 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 is problematic. Not so problem not as problematic as a lot of things we see from as we all say, like the walking problem that is Maggie, but I thought it was problematic. <laughs> no, Maggie like,
1: is Maggie is definitely a huge problem. That's a whole other can of worms, and I'm not gonna fight you on that at all. I think that and I don't wanna pull the I Have Ovaries card here. But no, by all means. I, th- I
0: mean, we can disagree, <laughs> but you can still have ovaries. <laughs> uh,
1: I think that the relationship that is represented there is actually one that a lot of women in the workplace would prefer to what they have. Um, and especially in the news industry, the, like media is like many, many public facing industries is incredibly misogynistic and can be incredibly sexist. And I think that you see Charlie coming in from this quote unquote older generation and Sloane being a very strong character. Um, And I think that you do still see a lot of respect for Sloane from Charlie. Uh, And that like, yeah, you made the comment about like, oh, she shouldn't have to deal with it. But I mean, there is a certain kind of snarky, um, kind of recognition that that's how things exist, and also, oh, but and, like, oh, and, but like he's not taking it seriously, right? Like, I don't, I don't know, I don't have a problem with that. I have a huge, huge, I have huge, huge, huge problems with Maggie just in general. I think she's terrible.
2: Can I um, can I jump in here for a second? I, of course, go, ahead, go I, ahead. I think we're kind of centering around to me one of the least problematic examples of sexism that we saw in last night's episode. Where, I mean, I, I I'm totally with you, Rachel, and I I can see like I'm fine with the character of Charlie coming off as kind of sexist because he's kind of an older alcoholic in the news business. And if that's part of his character, then I almost see that as him being a little more fully drawn and I'm fine with that. Um, I think for me, one of the bigger issues I see is that this th- there's sort of this ca- this universal characteristic trait among this ma- the main female cast in the show of, for lack of a better word, ditziness. It just seems to be like something that, this is is comedy for like of the female characters you have uh sloan not bringing the report and just bringing a blank piece of paper as a prop you have uh mckenzie forgetting her purse um and needing to borrow money from will for drinks and that cab, was a deeply cab back. scene
0: for me <laughs> what's that i said and that the mckenzie borrowing money from will was like weirdly uncomfortable for me like yeah. i think it was more uncomfortable than it was intended to be <laughs> um
2: and just like like in general the um i i think in any given episode there one of the three and sloan joined the club last night will have an awkward blurt out what's weird about the relation, are where we stand and how we feel about each other conversation with one of the male characters it It just doesn't yeah, seem think... like it, it just does not seem balanced in the way that the characters are portrayed in terms of gender roles. It really does it just seems like there there's a lot of subplots, a lot of moments that I don't think you can just pin down to the one of them. I almost think that universally among the three Sorkin gives very similar moments to. And it's really kind of underselling them as, like, really kind of undermining them as characters.
0: Yeah, I think I think you said it pretty much perfectly, Chris. I think the problem is the imbalance. Like, we're used to seeing this sort of thing from every Sorkin character, really, as long as he's been writing. But I don't think the balance has ever been as off and as off on gender uh, lines as it is in the newsroom. And as it continued to be last night. Um, though I will agree, I don't think the, the Sloan-Charlie thing didn't really bother me. I just think it was emblematic of... of uh, a lot of the things that do, in fact, end up bothering me. Um, and I think possibly it didn't bother me for the same reason that Sloan walking in with the blank piece of paper didn't really bother me, and it's because Olivia Munn can pull it off. Um, and that may be why I never really noticed these things that we're having problems with on uh, The West Wing, because Alison Janney is a class act and an amazing actress, and she can pull it off. Um, and they kind of make it, make them feel more fully rounded and i don't want to undercut i think allison pill is actually a very good actress as well i've I've liked her a lot in other things i just think that the character of maggie is such a mess that i don't know if she has anything to do with it um but for me uh uh, while i'll agree it did contribute to the pattern of ditziness i think the the sloan walking with the blank piece of paper and then pulling it off was actually a a trend in the right direction i thought that was fantastic
1: actually i really liked that scene
0: because it was it was a moment where... And just like the scene at the beginning where you see things going wrong in the uh, production booth and Mackenzie just pulls it off and makes it work. It felt like a trend in the right direction of, like, well, these women are also very good at their jobs and they know what they're doing. Yeah, um, I
1: actually wanted to make that point because, Chris, you mentioned, like, the ditziness and how they're always fucking things up. And, yeah, that's totally true. Um, but part of it is also, like... I think that throughout, there is a sort of, um, really serious professional respect for Mackenzie that we see from the beginning. Um, people are really impressed by her work. She's brought in to really turn shit around, um, in a way that nobody else can handle and in a way that, um, Harley, who's kind of the center in terms of, like, the morality of the show, I think, which is a really weird thing to say considering that character, um, but he is the elder statesman who kind of holds he it all Sorkin's together. He's the great
0: white man. Yeah,
1: he's the great white man. Um, You know, he knows that Mac is the only person for the job. And I think you you saw today, you saw in this week's episode, you know, there was talk about her um, overseas um, re- reporting. So I think that there is a lot of, like, respect for her in that sense. And, um, yeah, she can be ditzy, but... That's I agree with you that, th- that
0: everyone on the show shows a lot of respect for her. I just don't think we've seen a lot of reasons for that until now. My problem is, everyone can say, it's like on Studio 60 when everyone says Matt Albee is the world's greatest writer, and we never really see a great comedy sketch from him, and it sort of undermines what the show's doing. Well, you can tell us McKenzie is the world's greatest producer, but if you just show us, like, if you just show her, like, I forgot my purse, and I can't even deal with the DC office because I'm so ditzy, and like, if you just show her screwing up and sending an email to everyone uh, that was meant for Will, like she did in, the, I think, the pilot bat last season, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and doing all these like ridiculous, completely incompetent things, and you never show her doing the things like we saw in the premiere last night, uh, where she's actually doing something really, really well, then it undermines people saying she's really good at her job. And at a certain point, it becomes less believable, and it becomes harder to root for the character.
2: And I'm not saying the show um, doesn't give them their moments of professional... Um of of being the constant professionals they're telling us they are, but, like, the, the fact that they give them all these same... Kind, like, that Sorkin thinks that these kinds of moments are funny for all three of these characters equally is what bothers me. It's, like, if you think about, like, a lot of these little moments of... And I, I wish I could think of a better word for ditziness, but they... All three of them do it, like, throughout the entire series so far. Um, and I just don't think that we had that in the what you were mentioning about the West Wing with... um. When you had the two main female leads being ostensibly Allison Jan- uh, Stocker Channing, well, three: um, Allison Janney, Stocker Channing, and um, i I forget who played Moss. Donna. Yeah. Oh, uh, um, and General
0: Maloney. I was thinking of yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, it, it they they just seemed like different characters. With well, they they were they just seemed like much more distinct characters in terms of the kinds of comedic beats they were given. Whereas here, I think it's all. At least in terms of the comedy, a little one note. And I think,
0: yeah, yeah. I think you're exactly right. Um I think we got to wrap this segment up.
2: I, would I say, do want to uh, say,
1: can I just add one oh, thing? Yeah, this course, is not at all talking about the women. This is going back to Jeff Daniels. I sure. think that his physical comedy is fantastic. like the facial expressions that he has a tendency to make, like that scene when the producer from d c comes in. And Mac is like, he's not gonna remember you. And like Will totally pretends and then the guy turns his back and he makes that fucking face. He's like, he makes like the dumb and dumber face. I just I love that shit. Um, and he has a tendency to do it a lot. I really do agree that his performance is like a huge I, I really enjoy his performance, um, basically. Yeah, I mean I think I think
0: Daniels is is week in, week out the best thing about the show. Uh sometimes Sam Waterson steals it from him. Uh but I think Daniels is, is the show center. Um I would say all in all, uh to wrap up, because I know Rachel, you gotta run in a second. I would say all in all, this was a strong episode for the show. It still had problems, but I'm gonna go into season two optimistic. Um what about you guys? Optimistic, pessimistic?
1: I'm optimistic.
2: Um pessimistic. I, I I saw <laughs> Mm -hmm. I saw growth in small areas, but just many of the problems I had from season one still carried over. So I think it'll be stronger, but I wouldn't call it, I don't think it's going to, on the whole, change my opinion of the show.
0: I think we'll check back in on the newsroom somewhere around the midpoint or the end of the season. In the next three, five, seven weeks, we'll be back talking about the show. So look out for that for now. Rachel, get on out of here because we're going to talk Pacific Rim. Adios. Bye. Um, And Chris, I'm going to kick over to you, and you can go ahead and start us off. As always, I'll give the the warning again. We are going to start the conversation with no spoilers, and listeners, we will let you know when we want to start spoiling things. So for the moment, if you haven't seen Pacific Rim, stay with us, and we'll let you know when to maybe skip ahead or come back next
2: week. Go ahead, Chris. Okay, so Pacific Rim is uh, one of uh, Guillermo del Toro's many, many projects that did make it to a theater near you. Um, and it is a, I don't know how else to describe it other than a wet dream of a summer blockbuster in that <laughs> it is giant robots fighting giant monsters. Um, it is, uh, a big, big action movie. Uh, basically the idea is at some point in the near future, um, giant aliens start rising out of the ocean uh, and just going on these Godzilla-esque rampages of destruction, destroying American cities. And our weapons can kill them, but it takes a long time to actually bring them down. So eventually we start building these giant robots to fight them. Uh, but the robots uh, are so big and so um, demanding of their human pilots that you can't just have one person piloting. That You have to have two people uh piloting a single robot and they have to kind of mind meld with each other inception style in order to um control this thing and be a uh cohesive fighting force against these robots and uh that's basically just the first 10 minutes of the film and after that it really uh keeps expanding getting bigger and bigger and bigger and telling a very um uh like story that spans many years Uh, and I think is quite ambitious in some places. Uh, I'm going to start off by saying just that I really loved this movie. I went in with almost no expectations other than thinking that, oh, this could be a good time or this could be really, really cheesy. And I found myself absolutely mesmerized by it. I walked out of that theater with a grin that would make the Cheshire Cat proud, just having had probably one of the best times I've had at the theater all summer uh jordan how do you feel about it this is easily
0: my favorite blockbuster of the summer so i think we probably are on the same page on this one for the most part i
2: believe so yes
0: um i just thought this is this is what i feel like a blockbuster should always feel like uh with exceptions um i was thinking about this earlier today i was writing something pacific ram and i was thinking about this earlier today i uh, in the summer of 2008 we had two blockbusters, we had several blockbusters that were very good, two that immediately swung my mind. You had The Dark Knight and Hellboy 2. To me, that was like, that's like the perfect uh, heads, tails coin of the summer blockbuster. The Dark Knight is this like big, epic, brooding, portentous film. Um, Hellboy 2 is a fucking blast. Um, just a lot of creativity rocketed together with some great action, some good comedy. Um, and I feel like We've had a lot of brooding, nothing that's even come close to the quality level of The Dark Knight, but we've had, since The Dark Knight was so successful, I think we've had a lot of films that fit that mold, and that sort of try to be The Dark Knight, um, and this is the the first movie of the summer that really felt like it was having fun with itself to me. Um, I think it was, it was big and action-packed in a lot of great ways, it was funny in a lot of great ways, it was serious enough that I felt it had stakes, um, but the biggest thing to me is just the sheer amount of creativity in this movie. I mean, every aspect of it feels very lived in. It feels very fully realized. Um, and it, it almost feels like he had enough ideas for two or three movies and he just shoved them all in one because that's what he had. Um, yeah,
2: honestly, my my first thought when that film ended was that I could have easily sat through another hour of that, like happily. I would have just, I I, I could have just lived in that world for a longer period of time, I was just having so much fun just being a fly on the wall there. Um, yeah, I I, I liked uh, I for a movie that has a lot of influences. Uh, just off the top of my head, Godzilla, Transformers, uh, a wee dash of Inception. Um, it felt very fresh. Like the the entirety of it felt very. Um, very, it felt like a really creative new spin on a lot of Saturday morning cartoon ideas, brought together in a way that worked really, really well as a very dramatic movie, but was still a lot of fun. It was never too dark that it lost that side of fun that it had right from that opening scene when you see the um when you see that first Jaeger like stepping out into the ocean, going off to fight the um the kaiju. Uh, for for those of you who don't know, the Jaegers are what they call the giant robots in this film, and the Kaiju's are what they call these huge monsters. Which, as a very nice touch, I thought was uh, the the monsters are labeled with a category system. So it's almost like you're talking about a hurricane when they're announcing. So it's like, oh, it's a category three kaiju. And that just denotes how big and powerful it might be, which I thought was kind of cool is that they, a a very interesting yet subtle touch in that they almost, these things have been coming for so long that they're almost viewed more as natural disasters than as alien invaders.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, And I think throughout the film, there's sort of a, a running motif of treating the kaiju as sort of a metaphor for, um, you know, global warming and environmental change, but it's never heavy-handed at all, and it never like hit you in the face with it. It's just it's something that's sort of referenced very obliquely, um, and in a way, I think it, it sort of it made the the movie relatable uh, without ever getting in the way and making it seem like it was trying to be a message movie in any way, shape, or form.
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I I think something else that really impressed me about the movie was. Uh, just how many, how much story they were able to pack into this film. Like, did you feel that way? That there was like, I, I felt like a lot of the character arcs were really given a decent amount of room to just kind of develop. And when, where to, at the point of, I would say, maybe probably around the midpoint of the movie, it truly felt like a very ensemble cast to me, where it definitely started off with like one obvious lead character. It really felt like a true ensemble by the time you hit the midpoint.
0: Yeah, um, I, would, I would say that's definitely true. And almost, but never to the film's detriment, I would say. Um, yeah. Is, it's, it's a really, really busy movie. Um, and there's a lot going on. There's a lot of ideas. And I think there's a lot of things that maybe could have used a little bit more depth had the film had time. But I think that it, it goes along enough of a clip that you can kind of overlook anything that's not working for you. And it throws enough ideas that you can go, oh, that's cool. And then it's on to the next thing. Um, so I would say for the most part, that worked to its advantage. Uh, but there's just, yeah. there's a, there's just a lot going on in the movie in a good way. I would say, I mean, if not, if something's not working for you, there's five other things, you know, if you can't stand Charlie Hunnam's uh, terrible American accent, don't worry about it. Cause Idris Elba's standing right there in a kick ass <laughs> suit being badass.
2: <laughs> yes. And that's something I think we can all get behind.
0: Yes. More Idris Elba, please. World. Um, Hollywood. Absolutely. If you're listening to this, all of Hollywood, can you handle that for me? Them, uh, I, right I now, assume there are like executives. Actually, yeah. no. As we've already established, only political uh, bigwigs listen to this. But political bigwigs, call your Hollywood friends. Make the executives scramble around to uh, give me more of your please. Yeah. So let me ask: what was your what was the the big favorite thing of the movie? If you
2: if you can sing, single out one thing. Um. I hate to go this broad, but just it's just wholehearted embrace of just like the sense of big action movie fun of just like, this is what a summer blockbuster at its best can be. Like it's this idea of it's an end of the world movie, but it's a r- absolutely ridiculous end of the world movie. Like the, their, their plan for dealing with the giant monsters was giant robot men. And there's just something so, Wonderfully ridiculous about that, and just seeing these things slug it out, um, and destroying cities was just, uh, it, it was just, it was just the best kind of action movie in that it what had huge stakes. It wasn't afraid to take itself too seriously, but it never ventured into the realm of parody or mocking the genre at all. And at the same time, there were there were really very archetypical, but at the same time very enjoyable character arcs that uh, really serve to give the film just enough heart to make you care about it beyond just being an action spectacle. So I know that's the broadest thing to ever say there. So let me try and narrow it down a little bit more to, I really liked the idea of the, um, the mind meld drifting they had to do to control the robots. I think that element really kind of kicked the film into another level over maybe something we'd kind of seen before I think that that when I was originally was hearing about like the trailers I was like oh that's kind of weird why are they doing that I don't really get that but then when I saw it on screen I totally I, I totally got it um and really seeing these these relationships between these pairings like how they have to like learn how to live inside each other's heads and help each other through like all these dark memories and learn how like different combinations can work with each other to make these things these robots move i think really elevated it to a level that it wouldn't have been if it was just like single pilots in really really big iron man suits do you, do you kind of understand what i'm saying yeah definitely yeah
0: um it, it gives it its own vibe
2: yeah how about you what would you say was your uh
0: well, I want to start big, uh, like you did and sort of, yeah. it's similar, but a little bit different. I think, sure. I think what this movie had that I just adored, uh, was this really pulpy sci-fi feel to it. Um, and part of it is like the response to giant monsters. Let's build giant robot men. Like I, uh, you know, in a, in a movie that took itself, not even more seriously, cause I think the movie takes itself seriously, but has enough of a sense of humor to keep it from being ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in any other movie, I'd be rolling my eyes and saying like, can't we come up with a weapon that's better than a giant robot? But yeah. this movie pulls it off. Um similarly, like, you have the naming scheme of this movie is just so like fifties like sci-fi pulp that I love. The, you know, the base is called the Shatterdome. Dome. You've got characters oh, yeah. Stacker Pentecost and Hannibal Chow, and it's like it's all it's all got this real like like I think Pulp is the only word I can think of to describe it. It's this it's this beautiful, stylized, well realized feel to the whole movie that I just loved. Um Yeah. To get more specific, I think the sequence to me that was the most Guillermo del Toro, um, and I'm a huge del Toro fan, if it's not clear already, I loved Hellboy 2. Um, and I think the scene that tracked that the most to me and that just made it, put a smile on my face the whole time was when uh, uh, Charlie Day's character, one of the scientists, goes to the area of Hong Kong called the Bone Slums, which is like a uh, ghetto set up in the carcass of one of these fallen kaijus. Uh, and he's on the hunt for... Hannibal Chow, a black market kaiju organ dealer, which is just, what a what a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, that's just, what a bravura. It's, it's just a wonderful sequence. Um, and you have, when he walks in and meets Ron Perlman's character, Hannibal Chow, and it's just, he's surrounded by all of these, like, organs and all these pieces of the kaiju, and it's just, it reminded me of the Troll Market sequence in Hellboy 2, just for, there's so much visual imagination on the screen in such a short amount of time. Yeah. I just like i said i had a smile plastered in my face that whole time
2: i also i really like the history that they kind of imbued this world in like they, there was a line towards the beginning where they were talking about how these pilots sort of became rock stars so i and i kind of like the idea that like there was sort of like a cult following to the idea of like certain fights and there there was history to each individual like uh giant robot and the fights that it had been in and uh, where it had been, who they had defeated, when, and you had certain characters who had uh, tattoos or memorabilia for some of the monsters. Um, it, it just, it really was a world that you could tell that a lot of a lot of planning had gone into, and it really felt very, very easy to get invested in because of just how much love was obviously behind the construction of it.
0: Absolutely. Um, is there anything that, that didn't really work about the movie for you? Can I ask that?
2: Um I I think the the, the main character's arc, uh Raleigh, mm-hmm. uh kinda got a little lost towards uh the middle and end of the film and it really became more a story about um uh Elba's character and his uh, his adoptive daughter's character. Um, whereas I I was really enjoying the arc that they had set Raleigh on at the beginning where it's this whole idea of how he had basically, his brother had basically died in his head and that's why he can't go back to piloting because he's had literally not only lost his brother but felt his brother die in every sense of the word. Um, And I, I felt like you had had this like huge obstacle for him to surmount and getting back into that cockpit. And then all of a sudden he's just all about like, I want this girl to be my co-pilot. She's got to be the one. Let's go do this thing. Let's get me back in the game. Uh His, it, it just seemed like, and I'm sure there was just so much going on in this movie that you had to speed that up a little bit, that there were some dramatic beats that were kind of lost along the way in his story. And as a result, made him less interesting towards the middle and end of the film than he was at the beginning.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see that. And he, I mean, I think, honestly, I think Hunnam's performance is is maybe the weakest part of the movie. Um, And I think that he's not done many favors uh, by the script. Like, I just think Del Toro was interested in pretty much everything that wasn't the main guy. Um, yeah. Like, I feel like the movie starts with a very, it's a very cliche sort of standard action, uh, summer blockbuster structure. And I just don't think Guillermo del Toro was particularly interested in that portion of the movie. So you've got, you've got the basic bones of it that play out exactly as you'd expect and everything going on around that is way more interesting and a lot more fun.
2: Yeah. But at the same time, I was still interested. Like I was still interested in that trajectory. It just kind of seemed, it just seemed like too sudden of a shift for me and sort of a missed opportunity and, um, just allowing that character just kind of drift into the background.
0: Yeah, I think uh, you're right when you say, and this is, I, I feel like we're in a summer of blockbusters that feel very bloated, and this is yeah. a blockbuster that I would say, like, if there had been 20 or 30 more minutes, this might have been an even better movie. Like, yeah. I think if they had got, had a little bit more time to go into a little bit more depth, it'd be great. Um,
2: I would love to see an extended cut of this I was movie. I say, I'd love there yeah. to be
0: a director's cut. I don't know if one exists, because I don't think a whole lot was cut out. You know, I didn't hear any controversies over it, but I'd love right. to see a director's cut of this. And I'm sure when it comes in on Blu-ray, there will be a making of it just longer than the movie, just like there was for Hellboy 2, which if you're a big film geek, if you care about how things are made, go watch uh, the Hellboy 2 making of documentary on the Blu-ray for it. It's longer than the movie, and it's amazing. Um, so I'll plug that as well.
2: Cool. <laughs> but um, so- Something I also would just like to shift to really quickly yeah. would be um, I, was, I was a big fan of the action scenes in this film. Uh, having come out of... I think not so long ago, Superman, uh, Man of Steel, where the action scenes were just almost so fast and so dark that at times it was just like, I I just gave up on trying to follow. I thought even though everything was sort of dark and it was rainy all the time, there was always water around, I never had trouble following these action sequences or being engaged by them. And I think that's really an impressive feat in the age of giant CGI things duking it out. Because, I mean, I I think the closest comparison I could probably make would be the Transformers films, of which the action action sequences are just a mess. And you could honestly just have, like, a camera doing a close-up of an erector set just being smashed together by a child, and chances are I might not be able to tell the difference. (laughs) But this was so done in a way that was both clear and exciting and i think that's a big feat because i don't really remember a time that i've seen something like that done this well
0: yeah i one of the things that i wanted to sound out and it's it's again it's similar i feel like you and i are on exactly the same page in a lot of things this evening not that it doesn't always happen but um one of the things that really impressed me about the movie was there's he takes del toro takes time to add like little visual flourishes and jokes to a lot of the big like bombastic action scenes that that made it feel like more lived in and, and connected me to to what was going on more i mean in Ma- like you said in man of steel i just felt like it was enervating after a while you just had like the city was falling down okay I'm like great um but there are little things like uh the the sea of dead fish that comes back in after the after one of the Jaegers explodes or the uh what happens when the, the fist of the egg goes through and hits that very tiny, uh, whatever they call those balls that bounce back and forth on a desk. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Like, it just stops just in time to hit it and get it started. And it's like, little things like that that made me chuckle or maybe me go, that's really cool, and that's an interesting take on that. Um, that just kept me engaged throughout these huge action sequences. But I think you're right about the way, the way their shot makes them easy to follow in a way that a lot of action in the last few years hasn't been. yeah. This is just a good old-fashioned blockbuster, you know. It does it does most of the things that a great blockbuster movie does well, very well. Um and it's rare, you know, in, in at least in this year and I think in the last few years it's rare to see something that's as much yeah. fun as this.
2: I mean, especially think, especially but, since like I I think in recent years the word blockbuster has almost taken on sort of an apologetic connotation. You know what I mean? It's like it, it's a lot of times it's used to say like well, this wasn't the greatest movie ever, but, you know, it's just a summer blockbuster, so cut it some slack. Whereas, I I think this movie is a big reminder of the idea that, like, what a blockbuster is when it is great. Like, there is such a thing as a great blockbuster. Blockbusters are supposed to be huge, big spectacles that are fun, that are engaging, that make you feel a whole bunch of things that maybe uh, just can be this thing that like everybody has to go see that is that thing that you just want to talk about with all your friends and it's just a great example of escapism so i think that this movie really exemplified all the best qualities of what a blockbuster can be
0: yeah i think you're exactly right like a great blockbuster should be just that it should be you know i think a great blockbuster should be a great movie um yeah that doesn't have to mean being as serious and you know deeply symbolic as The Dark Knight was. And that's yeah again, The Dark Knight was a great movie and a great blockbuster, but I think this is a movie that captures how much fun you used to be able to have at Blockbusters in a way that nothing else this summer at least has, and that I hope more things will follow suit. Um I hope this movie ends up doing very well. I know grown-ups too beat it at the box office because we live in hell. That hurt um, me
2: on the inside. Viscerally, viscerally hurt me on the inside.
0: But I really hope if you haven't seen the movie, we actually didn't end up getting into any spoilers, which is not bad. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, go check it out. Uh, it's it's just so much fun. I, I have a hard time believing you won't enjoy it, even if you don't love it. Um, it's just, it's the type of movie you want to sit down with, with popcorn on a hot summer's day and just like enjoy.
2: And I will say, if you have the choice, see it on the biggest screen you can find. It's a big movie. Watch it that way
0: yeah i i would agree um i didn't see it in imax because it was imax 3d and you know my feelings on 3d yes. um but i almost imagined that it might be better in imax 3d did you see it in imax 3d
2: i didn't but i kind of want to now i liked yeah, it so much i, I want to go back
0: i may revisit it in and i haven't seen a 3d movie since uh avatar because that was the one that was supposed to change 3d for the better. And I saw it and was like, you know what? Still didn't do anything for me, so I haven't yeah. gone back. But this may be the movie that makes me go go back and see a movie in 3D uh for the first time in years. Um is there anything else you wanted to say before we wrap this segment up?
2: No, I, I think we've pretty much covered it all. I just hope that I, I think it's pretty hard to miss the enthusiasm, the love we have for this movie. So please take our word for it.
0: Yeah, this is go one see
2: of- it. We really, we we really, we like to like things here. I mean, I know, like, we're kind of a pessimistic bunch that just likes to rag on things a lot of times, but we really like this, and we think you will too. So please go check it out. That's
0: the perfect way to end it. I don't even want to say anything else. Um, uh, So go see Pacific Rim. With that, we are going to hand out the Rachel Tardif Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week. As you all know, we've spent the show laboriously calculating there have been a lot of tallies to check off there have been some boxes to check i don't even know where those came from those are new on the form but we've got some boxes to check now um and we've come to the tabulation so with a drum roll the uh winner of the rachel Tardiff memorial award for best performance in the week and god rest her soul she's not here with us now to hear it handed out unfortunately um <laughs> the winner of the Regitar's Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week is Mitch Hurwitz, who not only managed to revive Arrested development for another season on television, but now looks to be positioning himself to review uh, to renew it for a yet another season on television. And actually, in a first time on the Review The Name podcast, we have a tie. This has just come in, it's just hot off the presses. We have a tie. Oh my God, so I'm so excited. Con- congratulations to Mitch Hurwitz but we also have to hand a Rachel Tardiff Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week to Guillermo del Toro. Woo! Who who not only has the fanciful, amazing-sounding Slaughterhouse-Five adaptation with Charlie Kaufman and himself in the works, but gave us the best blockbuster of 2013 so far. There's no way you don't get a trophy for that, Guillermo. So, Mitch, Guillermo, come down to our offices, pick up your trophies and your small cash prizes. You each get one. You don't have to share it. Um... And please come at the same time, because I feel like we would have a really good conversation if we had Gamble del Toro, Mitch Hurwitz, and us in the room at the same time.
2: I, I think that one would definitely win us the potty.
0: Yeah, we would get a potty. <laughs> um, with that, this has been the Review Name Podcast. I have been, as always, Jordan. And tonight, we are canceling the apocalypse.